0: Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, July 14th, we're studying Psalm 31, The Lord is the refuge for His people, to Him, they can safely commit themselves. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wurgow. Pastor Wurgow serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wurgow, welcome back to Sharp Ryan.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Pastor Wurgow, what should we know as we prepare to look at Psalm 31 this morning? What kind of context is helpful?
1: Yeah, this is a, a pretty familiar psalm, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, it, it's... Um, you know, we divide the Psalter into uh, typically into five books. Uh, and this one would fall in the first book of the Psalms, uh, which encompasses Psalms 1 through 41. Uh, its authorship is David, uh, which he's the primary author uh, of the Psalter in general, but especially of the first book of the Psalms. But um, uh, Psalm 31 as well, we know that all these Psalms have kind of their own categories or genres. Uh, some overlap so we do find that, but this one is categorized primarily as a psalm of, of lament, uh, compared with uh, psalms of praise, royal psalms, uh, and, and various other ones. Uh, so this one uh, we'll see kind of with the context of the psalm or the whole, whole looking at the psalm as a whole, really is speaking um, concerning the sufferings uh, that the psalmist, uh, uh, that David's encountering, uh, but in the midst of that also then his. Uh, his faith in the Lord uh, and in the steadfast love of the Lord, which that uh, theme of steadfast love will come up again and again. Um, this psalm, perhaps some uh, some say, might have been written during the events of Psalm, or sorry, First Samuel twenty-three. Um, if you remember that, that's the event where uh, Saul's forces are pursuing David, uh, and that plays in. You can kind of pick that up, perhaps with uh, with uh, some of the language that we see throughout Psalm. Uh, 31. Uh, Regardless of whether that's event or another one, we see kind of a whole holistic understanding of uh, what what happened to David historically in 1 Samuel 23 is also related to uh, the Christian life of of, of suffering as well. Uh, This psalm is really uh, kind of perplexes people as well uh, for two reasons, I think. The first one being that you have kind of verses 1 through 8 that we'll look at, which almost kind of can stand on their own, uh, where you have um, the trouble and the plea for mercy, and then really the confession of God's deliverance. And then in nine, it goes right back into the, uh, the, uh, uh, confession, uh, or the, the pleas for, for help, uh, that God would be gracious in his, in in David's distress. uh, And it continues through that. Um, another reason why it kind of perplexes people is it really does seem like there's, David's almost walking this line where he is, uh, on the one hand, making a very clear confession of his confidence and his trust in the Lord. Uh, And on the other hand, he's talking about, you know, being in such uh, distress and uh, turmoil and danger. Uh, I think Christians can really read this, though, without any, it is kind of paradoxical in one sense and perplexing. But uh, when we understand this psalm in light of uh, the life of faith of David and of 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 all Christians, uh, we do see that this is, uh, the Christian life It's kind of the cyclical nature of going from, Mm -hmm. from lament to praise, uh, of, 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 uh, doubt to faith of fear to comfort and then back again, even because again, um, as we, uh, you know, uh, read in the scriptures, the Christian life is one where we're always at odds with, uh, even our own sinful flesh, which does not want to believe God's word or trust in him. Um, uh, one biblical commentator puts it this way: As much as we want to believe uh, that our lives uh, do not, that our lives unfold in a logical order, things happen that we don't expect, and faith and doubt are really part of of our life, of the cycle of 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 uh, the life of faith. Um, and so, you'll kind of see that as we go through it, but again, I think we reconcile that paradox or this perplexing nature when we understand that this isn't just any piece of uh, um, poetry or literature, that this is actually a prayer to God. It's, it's, it's God's word. And ultimately, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to conclude with this nicely. Uh, we understand all these Psalms as Christ, uh, Christological, that is Christ praised these Psalms, that these Psalms are all reconciled in Christ and we understand them uh, primarily as the, Jesus words before our words. Hmm.
0: Yeah, the the matter of Psalms being perplexing and, and Psalm 31 falling into that category, I, I think is, you know, we we like we would like the Psalms to be nice and tidy, that David always starts off praying for some kind of need, his prayer gets answered, and then he praises God, and then there's an Amen at the end. Mm-hmm. But they, they just don't always work like that. And and I think, you know, as you said, this is the, the Christian life. And so it and when we when we see the Psalms you know functioning in, in those two ways, both as God's word to us that certainly teaches and, and gives us Christ, but also then our prayers to God. I think that makes a lot more sense to us. Like, well, yeah, there's times where my life isn't so neat and tidy like that either. And I'm praying both in in trust and confidence, but also in need and and not sure how God is going to answer. And and we, I mean, when we start to use the Psalms in that way, I think they start to, if I can say this kind of in air quotes, they make more sense. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, make more sense in the fact that we're understanding them with Christ as the key. Yeah. <laughs> Christ as the key to it all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a look at Psalm 31 this morning to the choirmaster, a Psalm of David in you. O Lord. Do I take refuge? Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net. They have hidden for me for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That's Psalm thirty one. Pastor Werger, I think you really do see the the structure that you were talking about, verses one through eight, and then verses nine through the end, that you do really see that back and forth and how each you know has a certain a unity to it but the whole psalm certainly I, I think goes together so I'm looking forward to, to looking at this with you take us into the the first two verses of the psalm
1: yeah so uh, David stalls, starts this psalm with the plea for rescue right right off the bat uh in fact actually it begins with right right at the start uh, with a confession uh that he takes refuge in the Lord then comes the, the plea don't let me be don't let me be put to shame. Uh, and so there's this, this plea for rescue, this, the plea directed at God, uh, God is position petitioned to be this refuge, deliverer, rescuer, a rock of refuge, a strong fortress. So very much the imagery drawn up is that, uh, you have God as this, this, uh, this place of, of both rescue and a place of, of refuge, uh, and that's really going to be neat. What he does um, towards the end of this psalm when he directs that to the uh, to the sanctuary, which we'll get to. Uh, but notice that uh, in verse two, uh, he says, "Incline," or no, in verse one, sorry, he says, "In your righteousness, deliver me." Uh, and that is to say, the psalmist, David's not looking at, at his righteousness uh, or or anything his strength or, or anything of that nature, but um, he, he he points to God's righteousness. So, so he's asking God, he's, he's confessing that he takes refuge in God, he's asking God to not put him to shame and to rescue him, but why should such a petition be heard by God? Uh, and the answer is that it's in his righteousness, in Christ's righteousness, or God, the Lord's righteousness that he has delivered, which is really central, I think, to the whole psalm. Uh, in particular, right off the bat, we're talking about why can we approach God? Why can we ask these things? And David makes it clear, in your righteousness, do this. Now, Luther talks about this. He does, he writes, uh, it does not say in my, but in thy righteousness. That is, in the righteousness of Christ, my God, who becomes ours through faith and by the grace and mercy of God. Uh, again, this is so central to the under- proper understanding of, of the Christian faith, proper understanding of how we understand this psalm, and how we can actually call upon God, uh, both through the Psalter and our our prayers and petitions to God, but even the prayer life of the Christian church. Why can we call God our Father? Uh, It's through faith in Christ Jesus. By faith, we have his righteousness.
0: Yeah. And, and that just, uh, we've seen this before. We, we recently looked at Psalm 24 and there this, the, the word righteousness was in that Psalm and that righteousness was a gift in Psalm 24. And here again, it is the Lord's righteousness that forms the basis. So it, it's, it's wonderful to see how often that comes up within the Psalter, this word righteousness, and we see it being used in the same way that it gets used throughout the scriptures, what God does for us sinners, his gift to us there it is yet again in verse one. How does David continue into verse three?
1: Yeah, when he gets into kind of three through five, we have David moving from um, really from these petitions to this confession. I think this is, is a beautiful way of saying um, uh, saying to back to God what we believe. Uh, who we believe he is and what he has spoken to us in his word. So we kind of move from petition to a confession, specifically confessing God's character and his care, uh, where uh, he was previously called upon to be a refuge and a deliverer, et cetera. Here he has confessed to not only be those things, but to be those things for David, right? For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Um, there's something to say, uh, the, the personal nature, I think, that, that that David confesses here, which we in faith as well confess, that not only has God a rock, not only is a fortress, but he's promised to be that for us, that we put the my on there, uh, draws it home to us in the midst of our need and our distress. And then he says... Uh, Similar to how he talks about your righteousness in verse 1, in verse 3, he speaks of your namesake. Uh, And that might be very familiar to those, of course, who are very familiar with the 23rd Psalm. Uh, And in the 23rd Psalm, very similar language is is used uh, in Psalm 23, verse 3. 3, where he says, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, I kind of have two points for this when we talk about what does that mean for your namesake? Well, the first thing is, we look at this as, as, as God's reputation, his good name. That is, it's similar to what he was doing Uh, Previously in in verse three, um, to call God what He is, Uh, this is what who God has told us He is in His Word, His promises. It's throwing those promises back into His ears and saying, "Here, this is who You've promised to be. This is Your reputation, and so uh, do it." (laughs) And and I think faith prays with such boldness and confidence, so that this is for the sake of the Lord's good reputation. But we also must not get the understanding that. We are the ones who make or break God's reputation or His name. His name stands; we don't change it, right? Uh, as Luther says in the um, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, um, uh, with the first petition, "Hallowed be Thy name." Uh, you know, God's name is holy in itself, but what faith prays is that it be made holy among us. And how is God's name kept holy uh, through uh, the the uh, the teaching, pre- pure preaching, and teaching of His of His Word? So, um, so again. For God's namesake is a beautiful confession, throwing the promises of God back and back into his ears as we petition him. Uh, He's he is. Uh, holy in himself. He, he has his name in himself. So to refer to the name of the Lord or for something to be done for his namesake is another way, again, of just recalling these promises of God. And, and again, I kind of mentioned God's word name and God's word are not separated from one another. We don't separate God's name from his promises and who he has re- been revealed. Um, and so God's proper work in the promises of God is this steadfast love that David's calling upon, his mercy, his being a a refuge and a rock and a a fortress. Um, And and so uh, that's kind of what what David's driving at here. And again, what we pray as well, uh, that calling upon God's steadfast love is is in his um, righteousness and for his name's sake.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm recalling what Jesus talks about praying in His name. I think there's there's a related conversation we could have on that. And and of course, you brought out the first petition, also the second commandment about not misusing the name of the Lord. Here in in such a prayer is the true hallowing of God's name, and this is the true proper use of God's name is to call upon Him according to His promises, which David continues into verse four. In verse four, we have the image of a net. What is the image of the net? How does David make use of that?
1: Yeah, this is kind of interesting because we kind of switch up the metaphor a little bit here when we get to verse four, when he says, you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now, not only do we introduce a new metaphor, we introduce kind of a new character here. uh, They, right? They, uh, and who is the they? I mean, um, we're talking about rescue. Now we get a little more specific about those who are trying to ensnare or trap. Um, uh, Seleska, who wrote the Concordia commentary for Psalms 1 through 50, uh, puts it this way uh, when he says, uh, nets were often used for hunting in the ancient Near East, possibly by placing them over a pit in order to entangle prey as it fell. Uh, But the image of enemies hiding nets to trap the faithful is formulaic in this psalm as well as other psalms. But what's also interesting to see uh, is that We don't have it here as much, but often we find that the enemies are actually the ones that become. Uh, uh, ensnared in their, their own traps. Uh, for example, Psalm 9, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. So you think of the net and the pit. Uh, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caused, caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Uh, I think there's a lot we could probably talk about, but we probably don't have time because we do have a lot of verses to get through. But this is an interesting uh, metaphor or way of speaking that the psalmist does bring out that there are those who stand opposed to the Christian faith, who, who want to entangle and uh, uh, snare and trap the Christian, uh, and they actually end up being caught in their own evil devices. I think we can almost you can see that, uh, really, uh, uh, in our world, and you ultimately do see it with uh, you know, uh, what Satan would use for evil, God ultimately uses for good.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. That's a pretty big theme in the Psalter and also elsewhere in the scriptures where you see the Lord turn the traps that the enemy set for his people, and they become traps for the enemies themselves. And that I do think that that is behind the image here, even if it's not made entirely explicit within this psalm as as the prayer goes on there is a prayer concerning what the lord would do to the enemies it doesn't involve the nets so much but still the lord is the one behind it now verse five of the psalm is probably the most well-known part of it these are words that we hear upon the lips of jesus how are they used here in psalm 31 how does Jesus take them and make them his prayer?
1: Right. Uh, This is uh, fabulous. So I really think this is kind of one of our key verses here and everything kind of hinges on it. But um, again, it's used by our Lord on the cross in Luke 23, uh, 46. Um, And and I think we can kind of understand it in a broad and kind of a narrow way. So broadly speaking, David is speaking of his life being in God's hands in a very real and literal sense that everything that belongs to him. um, And if you think of it in the way of the previous, in light of the previous verses, where we see David's confession that God is his refuge, it's not only for his uh, body, but also for his spirit and in life. Into your hands I commit my spirit, I think would just be another way of talking about all things. Uh, uh, he, he, he's speaking about um, uh, committing or entrusting those things to, um, to, to the Lord uh, in the midst of all that would endanger Um, David's body and life, he commits it to the one who is over all those things. So it really is a confession of faith. It's a very similar confession, too, that we uh, pray often uh, if we pray Luther's evening and morning prayer, where where we end with, Into your hands I commend myself, my body, and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Uh, The idea that at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, we commit everything to the Lord's gracious care with the confidence that he will provide Narrowly speaking, though, I think when we hear these words on our Lord's lips, uh, it, 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 um, and these things are definitely related to one another, but when we hear these words on our Lord's lips, we see that he ultimately praised them in a profound way and in a unique way uh, that then is just related to us through him. Uh, so I found a quote from Cassiodorus, Doris, who was a sixth century early church father, uh, and, and hopefully uh, this kind of helps to draw this to light. So Christ commends to the Father that treasure beyond reckoning, that soul that did the Father's will with equal dedication. So it was right that such spirit be commended to one so great to raise it raise it from the dead. Then he attests that he was redeemed. See, we go on to say that, right? Into your hands I commend, commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Uh, so that he was redeemed, but let us see at what price. It was that stated by Paul, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Philippians 2, seven. So you see how great the price was that he lowered his majesty to the level of human flesh. He emptied himself to fill all things fill things human with things heavenly. So, when we kind of see those two things together—our Lord's words and then our prayer—we see how closely they're related. Uh, so, so that we have this: not only do I commit my uh, spirit to the Lord and entrust in Him, I do it because Christ, Him on the cross, committed His very life and gave His very life, emptied Himself, so that I would be redeemed. We commit. Uh, our spirit, and David commits his spirit to the Lord because he's been redeemed by Christ the crucified. Uh, so we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Christ's death for our sins means we commit our very lives to his keeping, regardless, or actually really precisely because of our lament and our trouble and our enemies all around us. So we we turn back to the fact that we are baptized children of God, baptized into the death and the resurrection of Christ, marked by ones redeemed by Christ the crucified, so that, again, as we pray and and the evening and morning prayer, Martin Luther, or even in just our regular prayers, uh, we commend, commend, commit ourselves to our heavenly Father's care, uh, both in body and soul.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, and seeing the prayer on the lips of the Lord on the cross is such a such an encouragement because we know that He is the one who has redeemed us, and we see we get to see the results of that prayer as well. That you know, when the Lord Jesus committed Himself into the Father's care. The father raised him from the dead. And now that we are in Christ by virtue of baptism, his righteousness covers us. We know the same is true for us when we commit ourselves into the father's care, that no matter what befalls us in this earthly life, we know that we will be raised as well. And so, I mean, we get to see, that really just fills this prayer, as you said, which we pray every morning and evening along with Luther. It fills it with such a, a confidence no matter what may attack us in this life, whatever the nets may be, that we we are safe in God's faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So take us into to verses six and following, Pastor Wargal.
1: Yeah, it'd be good if we can uh, maybe try to get through Just, this first part before the break. Um, so, so this next section, we got six through eight, uh, is a continual confession now of joy uh, in God's rescue. So this idea of committing everything to the Lord's care and, and this confession of being redeemed by by the lord uh then issues forth in this uh in this uh confession really of joy and of trust uh in the lord so uh it it, it six has i hate those who pay regard to worthless idols but i trust in the lord that kind of uh, uh dichotomy or comparison right uh, so that the idea that there are those who who trust in idols um uh, but our trust in the Lord. I mean, this is a first commandment thing, right? It's it's very much fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And Seleska talks about the worthlessness of idols, which requires protection. The idols require protection, uh, contrast sharply with the trustworthiness of Yahweh, uh, who protects, right? So the Lord is above all things, above all creation, and he is the one who protects. Um, Likewise, this idea of hatred that he has here, that he hates uh, 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 those who pay regard to worthless idols, uh, is really set uh, against those, uh, to hate those who um, uh, who trust worthless or regard worthless idols, uh, is really to oppose those who uh, uh, oppose the Lord in his ways. And then second, he goes into seven and eight to talk about this idea of rejoicing and um, uh, rejoicing, uh, in the Lord's steadfast love, his said, uh, uh, and always when we talk about that steadfast love, I haven't picked up on already. Uh, it's, it's, it's always directed at the grace and mercy of our Lord founded in the death and resurrection of Christ for the sins of the world. Uh, that's how we know that the Lord's love. And that's how we know the Lord's love is, is, is steadfast. Uh, and additionally, then David confesses and rejoices that the Lord has seen, that he has known, that he has delivered. I really like those um, kind of uh, uh, verbs that are associated with God, uh, that uh, he rejoices in the steadfast love because, first, of he has seen my affliction. The Lord sees all things. He knows what you're going through. He's known the distress uh, of the soul, uh, and he also has then uh, delivered uh, not delivered into the hand of the enemy, but delivered and set um, the, uh, David's feet or our feet in, in a broad place, which a broad place is compared to a narrow place. And the Psalms use the idea of narrow place elsewhere to talk about a place of danger or trouble. The broad place means a safe and secure place uh, that, that the Lord has, has, has placed David and set him uh, in safety. And again, I think we're going to see that in the next section. Very much defined towards the Lord's, um, towards the Lord's sanctuary, towards the tabernacle. Mm.
0: I, I really appreciate you bringing out those verbs that the Lord does, and I, I think that also emphasizes the contrast between the Lord, who actually can do something and the worthless idols who can't they don't get any verbs cuz they can't do anything right. the lord does get verbs cuz he does do something so we're talking about psalm 31 here on sharper iron with pastor sam wergal we need to take a short break but we'll be right back please stick around Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 14th. We're studying Psalm 31 with Pastor Sam Wergau. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we made it through the first eight verses, which you, you pointed out at the beginning seemed to maybe stand alone, almost like you could end the Psalm at verse eight, but David doesn't. He keeps praying and starts revisiting some of the things he's already prayed about. What's the movie makes in verse nine?
1: Yeah, so it turns again for these pleas of mercy uh, in the midst of distress. Um, and and um, one biblical commentator mentioned that the prayer returns to the pleas to God, but here the vocabulary and the condition expressed are actually different. The pleas are more urgent, more descriptive, uh, and the one praying seems even to more so to be in dire distress. There's a lot more description here, uh, and it's a distress present for a long period of time. Uh, the trust expressed earlier is kind of eclipsed by great sorrow. And again, I think this brings us back to the cyclical nature, uh, which you see in the Psalter in general, where you have psalms of praise, psalms of lament, and they almost seem to kind of exchange with one another. Um, but also, the cyclical nature in the psalm itself really does tie into the, the Christian life—that at the one point we can be crying for mercy and have full confidence in the Lord's deliverance, and again. Uh, we find ourselves then in in distress, um, and which is where we find ourselves in nine. But again, with the confession, uh, the prayer to God: "Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and body also." Uh, here we have uh, kind of something a little bit new brought into it, but the idea that uh, with both this uh, that sorrow is associated with both the soul and the body, in particular, the David David speaks of the eye. Uh, uh uh and he talks about his soul and then a little bit later on in verse 10 he's going to talk about his bones wasting away it's very much um a physical physical nature of uh of uh of David's of David's sorrow uh, that he feels it in his very body uh and in scripture is not um, uh, this is not a foreign concept to the scriptures. I don't think it's a foreign concept to our, our life as well. You know, what we feel uh, in our soul, our emotions have physical effects in in our lives as well. Uh, Seleska writes, biblical prayer often associates emotions with the body parts where those emotions are felt as with the nose, the mouth for anger, the heart for a range of emotions and the innards for distress as well. Mm. Uh, and, and I think when we talk about this, and, and and we'll talk about this too, we'll see it a little bit further on, I believe, or I might be thinking of another reference I've made elsewhere. But we often kind of speak of that in terms of God as well, with this kind of anthropomorphism, the fancy word of of God, of doing that with God. Uh, but here, again, if we look at these Psalms as uh, Christological and as first, prayed, first and foremost prayed by Jesus and only secondarily by us, then we really do see that Jesus can pray these psalms, that his eye wastes away for grief, because guess what? God has an eye in Jesus Christ, a real eye. has real eyes, that he has bones, uh, and that those things physically suffered on the cross Mm -hmm. with the agony our Lord endured in his crucifixion, uh, which I think draws it from the metaphorical to the very real and the very physical as an answer, an antidote, to our real physical turmoil, distress that we feel both in body and in soul. Our Lord endured it all, and he did it for us so that we, again, going back to five, uh, uh, are are redeemed by Christ the crucified.
0: Mm, yeah, no the the incarnation of our Lord is is certainly an important thing, and with the with the matter of the eyes, you know, I think in English still, I think we have a, a similar saying. It, my my eye is wasted from grief sounds somewhat formal, but we will say still like I cried my eyes out. <laughs> yep. That that I think is the the idea here, <laughs> and the Lord did that. You know, I mean, maybe we don't often. I don't know that we often attach that kind of emotion to it. Maybe. <laughs> But Jesus wept—that very famous short passage from John's Gospel. He he cried. He felt that grief. He he knew that, and that that really, as you said, should provide us a great comfort as we go through those same things to know that the Lord is the one who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our sufferings and can bear us up under them. So let's let's just keep moving through this psalm, Pastor workout Take us into to verse 11. I think now we get to meet the the they that you mentioned back in, in verse four.
1: Right.
0: We seem to, to meet them here in verse 11. Right,
1: now. I think so, because uh, we bring up the word adversaries. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. Uh, so David speaks here the situation before men, um, where I think kind of what we've seen previously uh, in some respects has been uh, a matter of, of, of quorum Deo. Here we really have this idea of David uh, as confession and suffering before, before man. Uh, and uh, uh, that he confesses in verse 10 that his strength fails because of his uh, iniquity. Uh, um, My life is spent with sorrow. My strength fails because of my iniquity. Iniquity draws us to this understanding of my iniquity is before God, right? Uh, My life is spent in sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails me because of my iniquity. That is, I'm getting what I deserve for my sins. But then also you have this understanding of uh, our relationship with one another uh, before man uh, that is uh, uh, in verse 11 is because of his adversaries that he faces such uh, 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 reproach and such uh, distress. Uh, and so I think both are at play here, uh, but we do move more into this understanding of this before his enemies. The uh, um, one biblical commentary point this is the common idea that both the actions of the one praying and the actions of others have contributed to the present pain that they that they endure so so I think we have this too right where where we have have sorrow in our life or distress and some of it we've earned because of our sin and some of it because uh, others have have persecuted us hated us reviled us uh, and have sinned against us uh, um Dr. Sankpile makes a really good distinction in a few of his books when he talks about the difference between guilt and shame, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a good one that we kind of make that distinction. That shame is what we feel for grievous sins that have been committed against us, and guilt is what we feel for those things that we that we sin against others or sin against God, uh, which our sin against others is sin against God, uh, and I think that, that understanding that 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 holistic nature of that and understanding, I should say, the, 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 the depth uh, and the breadth of, of, of uh, the effects of sin is important. But the, the solution to it, as David points out here, is the same, uh, calling upon the Lord in the midst of uh, our, our uh, guilt from our iniquities and then really our reproach or our shame that we face because of, of uh, those who sin and attack and uh, are after us.
0: Now, I, I think when you look at these verses, verses eleven through thirteen, you you see why Christ chose this psalm as, as part of his prayer. I mean, we it's very easy to picture Christ on the cross and and even in all of his passion going through precisely what what is written there in verses eleven through thirteen. But then David and, and Christ himself, we also see that this is not a, a hopelessness or a despair. But these sufferings are endured in hope and in trust. Take us into to verses 14. And yeah, follow.
1: so this is really great because right after that, you know, really stark confession concerning uh, the situation that David's in, um, he has nowhere else to turn. But he says, I trust in you, O Lord, I say you are my God. And again, what we kind of talked about earlier with the nets and everything or, or the evil that we face in this life, God God using for good, uh, really is the case that... Um, uh, The Lord allows uh, evil to befall us, that he allows suffering, that he allows the cross uh, and, and, uh, you know, the the, the sorrow and and the the, the turmoil, the lament that we face. uh, So that we're really left with nothing else but to say, I trust in you, O Lord. Because everything else has, everyone else and everything else has forsaken me. Um, And and what stands when everything else is taken down? Uh, The Lord Uh, And again, the Lord who has given his promise that he will never leave me or forsake me, that he will be with me. So I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. Uh, Again, Seleska notes, I know I'm using him a lot here, but he's got some good stuff. Uh, The speaker's despair and sense of hopelessness are intense. He looks unsaved, but it's in that point that inexplicably, according to what we have just heard, his faith then shines. Uh, and so it really is, this is really our understanding of the theology of the cross, that the Lord is known in the midst of suffering, and that even when we have crosses in our lives, it's not a matter of God having abandoned us, but that he uses those uh, crosses for his good purpose uh, of, of drawing us to himself and to faith in him. Or St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you, our Lord says to Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's a, such hopeful verses here. You know, I mean, I trust in you. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about, well, in verse 16, there's a connection, I think, to the ironic benediction, mm-hmm. and then the, the prayer that comes in verses 17 and 18.
1: Yeah, so uh, in, in, in 16, you have, make your face shine on your servant, save me in your steadfast love. Uh, and of course, that uh, if Draws our kind of attention to Numbers six, uh, where um, well, let me find it really quick because it's worth reading the whole thing here, where where God God directs the priest to give this this benediction to the people of Israel, and I think actually we'll see a really cool connection here too. This is exciting. All right, so uh, Numbers six and 24. 5, yes. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them so this idea of the face shining upon the people uh, this is really uh, uh, a way of, of speaking or, or the way that Aaron uh, and and the and the priests of Israel blessed the people to say that God's face isn't hidden from them but it shines upon them and of course these very familiar words uh, are what are spoken uh, to the people of God At the end of the divine service with the with the benediction uh, upon them as they go out that the Lord's face would shine upon them. But notice the connection between the face shining upon and the whole of this blessing and God's promise that he by this shall put his name upon his people. His name will be upon his people, and we just saw that when we were looking at verse three, right, with the idea of the Lord's name sake. Again, this understanding of the name of God, His word, uh, His gospel being in our ears and upon us, so that we are blessed in that. And again, that's uh, the confession of the of David here to have the face, His, uh, the Lord's face shine on His servant, and to be saved in again that steadfast love, that steadfast love mm-hmm. that we ultimately yeah. see. Uh, in the work of Christ for us.
0: Now, what does David pray for in verses 17 and 18? Then, concerning both himself and then the wicked, his adversaries.
1: Yeah. So this is a, this is kind of uh, interesting that we have here. Um, da- David's confessing um, in six uh, in 17. Oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Again, we have seen this in, in, in bits and pieces here where uh, God's call, the, David's calling upon the Lord. He doesn't want to be put to shame, but uh, that his enemies would actually be the ones to go down silently uh, to Sheol. So, so David's praying again for this rescue. Uh, for the face of the Lord to shine upon him, uh, and and it's praying against his enemies that they would be defeated, that they would be put to shame, that they would go silently down to Sheol to the de- to the deep, that their lying lips would be mute. Uh, again, that speak uh, uh, untruth, that speak falsehood. Uh, uh, another biblical commentator writes uh, the additional elements here is that there are petitions for god to act against the enemies the shame should be on them and not on the one offering the prayer why what's the difference here is because david's praying in faith in in christ he's praying for faith and trust he's praying with faith and trust in God who is the way the truth and the life so that those who stand opposed to god also stand opposed to to David, so he prays that their lies would be silenced.
0: As David moves in the prayer into verses nineteen and twenty, he begins to speak of, of God's goodness again—a very, very hopeful and joyful confession that he makes.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's great. Uh, so he moves back to this confession in Thanksgiving, really looking again at the character of God and his goodness as revealed in his word. Uh, God's goodness is also described as being stored up, which I think is really fascinating. I didn't go too in depth into this, but to understand that, that you know, I think of Psalm 23, my cup runneth over this idea that, that there's not a limited supply here of the uh, abundance and the goodness of God. It's stored up and it's stored up particularly, again, for those who fear him the faithful, the ones who who trust in the Lord um, uh, and who look to him for their aid. So this is stored up for them. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about this refuge. Uh, Those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Again, this understanding of the refuge that God gives, but it gets even more defined in 20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them. From the plots of men, you store them in your shelter. From the strife of tongues. Now we can glance really quickly over that word shelter, and we shouldn't. Uh, it can kind of just seem like it's all the same thing: refuge, fortress, rock, all those kind of things. But when we get to that word shelter of God, and, and especially associated in that verse with the presence of God, so closely tied together, we understand that idea of the the, the shelter of God as the place of His saving presence. And that word, um, that word shelter, in verse twenty. I've just taken a quick look here. Uh The shelter in verse 20 is is the word for for tabernacle, uh, the dwelling Mm -hmm. place of God. Uh, And we see that tabernacle and temple, but then it's the sanctuary of God. The shelter is the place where God's presence has promised to be with and and for his people. So Seleska writes, the speaker's thoughts take him to the sanctuary, the place where God's people are hidden in him, safe and protected, though they might appear vulnerable, which we'll see here in the next few verses. uh, They are hidden where God is is present and that is he is present in his word and sacraments and there he is most nearly available to the senses to seeing to hearing to touching and to partaking and i think that's a beautiful way to understand it that that the rescue and the refuge of god is not in some ab- merely abstract sense but god has placed his saving presence and power and might for his people in means and in a place mm.
0: Yeah, I know it's a wonderful thing to see when the Psalms do that in this figurative language, yet there is a very concrete reality that is behind it all. And, and here, the shelter go to the place where God is, and there truly is your refuge. How does David continue into verses 21 and 22? Yeah, so
1: in the 21 he said, uh, he, he goes again into kind of this uh, praise Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. Uh, why is God blessed? Because of his wonderful works, because of his faithfulness. But then when I was in a besieged city. I think that's kind of interesting. Some commentators or scholars have, have a little bit of trouble because this is one of those Hebrew words that can kind of be translated either a fortified city or a besieged city. Um, and so you might find a difference in translation depending on which uh, version uh, of, the, of the English you're using here. But uh, the translation of a besieged city, which is what we have in the uh, English standard version, really does speak to the idea of this ever, ever-present ever fact that the steadfast Love of the Lord takes place under assault from the enemies. Mm -hmm. So Seleska writes, In the most dire and frightening predicaments, Yahweh makes his, has said, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, most wonderful. Uh, And I think that this is really significant if we're going to understand verse Psalm 31, 20, and 21. uh, In light of Christ's church, that is the place of our refuge. That is the place of God's presence among us. That is the uh, uh, that is the uh, shelter for the Christian, because that's where God's faithfully promised to be for our salvation uh, in the forgiveness of sins. It's also that the church exists under the assaults of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. The kingdom of God exists with all that is opposed to that kingdom, so that it really is a besieged city. Uh, and that, we Christians need to understand that. That's our safe place, our sanctuary, but it's a sanctuary, and we're, that's where we find our refuge, but it's also something that's under the attack from uh, the devil, the world, and even from inside with our own sinful nature.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's a wonderful promise, especially in the midst of this siege, yet we have a true refuge. And again, this is a very concrete reality that is ours in Christ within his church. Uh, take us in to the final two verses of this song yeah. and we
1: kind of skipped over but we just didn't have time when he said i am my alarm said i am cut off from your yeah. sight but you heard my voice again this contrast with the pro even even when our we're in alarm and say oh i i'm cut off from the lord he continues to hear our voice and our pleas for mercy when we cry for help then in 23 and 24 it actually kind of moves from uh, addressing god to addressing the people. It goes from kind of this uh, praise of God to to an exhortation. Um, It's directed to the the saints, uh, and they're called saints there. It's it's wonderful. It's directed to the people of God. So because of all of this confession of of faith, we uh, exhort, love the Lord, all you his saints, because the Lord preserves the faithful. He abundantly reprains the one who acts in pride. And then this last uh, bit, be strong and let your hearts take courage. The Lord, the, the, you're there being the saints of God, be strong. Let your heart takes courage. All you who wait for the Lord, this exhortation, uh, to wait for the Lord right here at the end is, is so, uh, significant and uh, similar language is used in Psalm 27. There's many times where Psalm 31 and Psalm 27, I've prayed in hospitals with the sick or with the dying, mm-hmm. uh, especially those who are in, uh, dire straits, uh, And to end it with saying, wait for the Lord. Take heart, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Because that is the Christian life. It is one of waiting. Waiting in faith. Waiting in the midst of cross. We're not home yet. We're still waiting for ultimate deliverance, even as we pray for deliverance. Now, it's something we uh, have now, but we don't have quite fully yet. So we pray for deliverance, though, and this waiting, waiting for the ultimate deliverance that will come, that we have no doubt about it, but we have to wait, and that ultimate deliverance will come the last day, just as the Lord has promised.
0: I mean, so much of this psalm, the imagery that is used falls into this category of waiting. The idea of being besieged, and again, I know there's some some question as exactly how that's translated, but the idea of being besieged involves awaiting. Mm-hmm. The idea of you know committing ourselves into the Lord's care involves a awaiting, a patience. My, my times are in your hand. In verse 15, all of this involves awaiting, mm-hmm. and we can we can wait with strength. And courage again, because we know what the Lord has done. We know who He is, and again, how that's all centered in the way Christ has prayed this Psalm from the cross, and the way that He has, you know, received all the gifts of this Psalm, such that we too receive them in Him. Uh, there's, there's so much here, Pastor Workout. What a, what a wonderful Psalm and a wonderful prayer that that can be used in so many ways in our lives as Christians. As we said, the cyclical nature and even just the back and forth within the Psalm itself. Make it such a, a wonderful prayer. As we wrap things up this morning, help us to see again the the goodness that is here in in Psalm thirty one. We have got about four minutes left.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's important to kind of understand that this this cyclical nature, this idea of lament to praise, or the continuation of needing to pray this psalm as Christians uh, and to be relying upon the steadfast love of the Lord uh, as He's confessed it, it through His holy Word and given it to us, is something that is not resolved in this life. And I think that's kind of kind of going back to the waiting theme, uh, the waiting understanding, uh, which I think it's great that David ends the Psalm that way. This idea that this waiting is going to be continual. Uh, you're not gonna be comfortable in this world. Uh, you're not gonna get over uh, uh, having to lament uh, and, and, and you're never gonna get over the need for Christ's rescue and his mercy Uh, which we ultimately see, again, in the forgiveness of sins. So even if uh, it seems like our enemies are taking us over, that, that we can't win any victories, we have the victory because... Above all else, what can the world do to us? What can Satan do to us? What can even our sinful flesh do to us? Because Christ has won for us the very forgiveness of sins and with that the promise to rescue and to deliver us. I want to kind of close, if it's okay again, since I've been quoting him this entire time uh, from Seleska's commentary because he has a beautiful way of kind of closing out uh, the psalm as a whole and kind of the cyclical nature, kind of the uh, back and forth that we have here. In David in this psalm, Uh, he does refer to the idea of the Christian life being one of both faith and doubt, Uh, quoting Mark nine twenty four where I believe, help thou my unbelief, Uh, but also uh, in Romans seven with this uh, understanding that uh, I uh, I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being, but I see in my members another law warning it warring against the law of my mind. Right, wretched man that I, who will deliver me from this body of sin, but But Seleska ends this way, the life of faith is a life lived between sorrow and hope, joy and sadness, death and life, but it's a life that ultimately looks forward to the resolution of the ambiguity, ambiguity that now characterizes our life. We look forward to that because in Jesus, God has promised us this promise. He too was forsaken by those closest to him and even by God himself from Psalm 22. He too suffered at the hands of his enemies and experienced grief and loss in his life. Hanging on the cross, he too looked unredeemed, but he never wavered in his faith. His last words from the cross were words from this psalm. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. He entrusted himself to the Father who had forsaken him, and his Father delivered. Jesus' resurrection erased the dichotomies and the tensions that characterize our lives. Uh, and so that's Seleska, and as another great uh, pastor, uh, friend of mine put it, because Jesus is raised from the dead. Everything is okay.
0: Pa- pastor Sam Wergau is pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us today with Psalm 31. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our uh, guest today. Always a pleasure. Christ prays from the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, and indeed the Father redeemed His Son, raised Him from the dead, so that all who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead, and we can safely commit ourselves into the Father's care every day and night until He raises us from the grave as well. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.